Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I'm a big fan of corsets, but not everybody is. Every time a new period drama comes out, it seems like the discourse against them begins again. They're uncomfortable, people say, a tool of the patriarchy meant to oppress women. But are they? Were they ever? Around the turn of the 20th century, some of the biggest opponents of corsets were actually men. They blamed them for women's health problems, and these arguments have persisted until today. Whether you realize it or not, you've probably seen some of the photos or illustrations from their books. They're still shared across social media as an argument against corsets and proof that they oppressed women of the past by compressing their internal organs and restricting their breathing in an effort to make them more sexually appealing to men. The problem is... It isn't true. Yes, anybody can hurt themselves by tight lacing in an ill-fitting corset, but that wasn't most women's experience. Most of the evidence against them from this period, as we'll find out today, was poor at best, and sometimes, as in the case of the radiographs that appeared in Ludovic O'Followell's massively influential 1905 book Le Corset, it was fake. Studying history has its challenges, and one of them is assessing the legitimacy of primary sources. For more than 100 years, people have taken O'Followell's work at face value, sharing his radiographs as proof that corsets were damaging, but O'Followell's book was nonsense. If you learn nothing else from today's episode, I want you to remember that just because a source is old doesn't mean it's legit, and it never hurts to know someone who can read a radiograph. Fortunately, I know just such a person. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to this week's guest. Dr. Rebecca Gibson. Rebecca is a biological anthropologist and the author of The Corseted Skeleton. Her new book out this May is The Bad Corset, A Feminist Reimagining, which is a translation and critique of O'Followell's book that did so much damage to the popular perception of corsets. We are talking about the pushback against them around the turn of the 20th century. It wasn't out of men's concern for women's comfort, but out of their desire to keep them pregnant. We're talking about O'Followell's book, How Corsets Changed the Thoracic Cage, Corset Myths, and How Period Dramas Sometimes Get Them Wrong. It is a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So here's my talk with Dr. Rebecca Gibson. All right, everybody. My guest today is biological anthropologist Dr. Rebecca Gibson, author of The Corseted Skeleton and, coming out in June, The Bad Corset, A Feminist Reimagining. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is fantastic to be here. Oh my goodness, and we are so glad to have you. So The Bad Corset is not like any other history book that I've ever read. (laughs) So it is a translation and a critique of a very influential book, uh, Le Corset by Ludovic O'Followell. Uh, Whether people realize it or not, um, I'm sure that they've seen illustrations from this book shared all over social media. I've certainly seen them quite a lot over the last few years. So what made you want to take on a project this big? I first came across this book accidentally in about 2012 when I was doing my master's thesis. And I ordered something. I don't even remember what, but I got this book instead of what I ordered, which is just an act of kismet. (laughs) And 
I, you know, I flip through it and I, it's mentioned by a lot of the huge coursing scholars, Valerie Steele, David Kunzel, and um, mostly for the illustrations, for the drawings and the photographs and the radiographs in it. And I read through, I, I knew at that point, very basic French. So I read through the introduction and he's got like 46 symptoms attributed to corseting. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. So I put it aside for a while until I got to my PhD. And then PhDs require both languages and research skills. So I made translating part of it into one of my PhD requirements. And as I'm doing this, I realize that not only was I correct that not all of the symptoms of corseting made sense, but also if you read the text, instead of going off the images, you get a much different picture of why he, why his agenda is really pushing course it's bad, course it's bad, course it's bad. The project itself came about because I did want to see, like, what's next. I did the corseted skeleton. I had a really great time translating my dissertation into a book. Um, and then I thought, you know, I can't, I can't leave a follow-all in a drawer. I have the actual book. I need to do something with it. So I approached my original editor for the corseted skeleton. She had moved on. She suggested Bloomsbury. Um, who took on this very unique way of looking at things, both the organization of the book and, of course, the book itself. Of course, goodness. Uh, now, we know very little about O'Followell as a person, but let's try to put his book into context briefly. So how many treatises were written about corsets at this time, and why were they written? Dozens. I, If you put the corset or any variation thereof in any language into a um, source search these days, you'll find dozens of these from various physicians from the time period. And it usually was physicians, male, female, at the start of their career, at the end of their career, it didn't really matter. Um, they all were talking about the corset. And specifically, they were talking about corseting damage to the body. And so you see this immense glut of people telling women that they're doing this wrong. People telling women like what they're doing with their body, what they're doing with their fashion is wrong. And you get counterpoints and you get arguments back and forth. It was an extremely popular topic during the time period. So what O'Followell was doing in 1908, 1905 and 1908, but we'll come back to that, is he was really jumping on this, this trend and putting a new twist on it in terms of talking about medicalization of the body and medicalization of the corset. He didn't think all corsets were bad, as some of his peers did. He thought that the corsets that his his physician friends sold were better than the ones that were on the market. So he was doing this not only as a medical thing, but also as a marketing scheme for his friends. Mm, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So like looking at the ads in the front of the book, it's it's striking that, you know, he's he's kind of railing against normal corsets, but the ones that he's advertising have these really extreme like waist to hip kind of ratios. Um, so how did women typically wear corsets? Oh, that's a fascinating question without a really great answer, because we can look at them as completely analogous to today's bras, and you, can, you can't answer that question. How does a normal woman, how does a typical woman wear a bra? Well, I'm currently not wearing one because I'm sitting in front of a computer screen and you can only see me from the clavicles up. <laughs> but... If I were to go out, I would wear something similar to it. Now, would it be a bra or would it be a tank top with one of those little elastic shelves? It's going to depend on the day and how much formality there is and how I feel and whether or not I have worn one that week and maybe there's like been some rubbing or something so it's uncomfortable. We don't give historical figures enough credit for being individuals in, and this is this is kind of a numbers game type thing, because we can conceptualize ourselves as individuals. We can conceptualize the people we know as 
being somewhat typical, basically because most of us gravitate towards people who do things similarly or the same way. But once we get above like 200 people, there's been studies with this, we can't really individualize people at that level. Mm -hmm. So we look to the past as a monolith, but they weren't. There were people going without corsets. There were people going with their corsets loose. There were people who did tight lace, which was, of course, the specter of evil of the day. And there were people who just, you know, got up in the morning, put on whatever was comfortable for that day and walked out and did whatever they did. Right, right, of course. But the, the tight lacing doesn't seem to be as, as common as people tend to think. Good Lord, no. no. Um, so this, I love analogies for this because we can all relate to a good analogy. So I'm old enough to have lived through the 90s with a skinny jean trend. Not every woman wore skinny jeans and they were uncomfortable, but they certainly didn't kill people. So um, yeah, there there was not as much tight lacing going on as people think based on the literature. And of course, with historic literature, we have this problem, which is that things survive that are sensational. Things survive that get read and that get promoted and that get remembered because they're extreme. So when you hear about this massive trend of tight lacing, you're seeing survival is what you're seeing. You're not necessarily seeing what happened on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. That um, uh, survival bias that you see with like a lot of historical clothing, you know? So people, um, just for people listening, if you're not familiar with this concept, it's the idea like when you go to these antique stores or vintage shops and you find these tiny, tiny, tiny dresses with like a 20 inch waist and you think, oh my goodness, women were so much smaller then, but it's not necessarily the case. It's just because that those are the garments that survive, right? Absolutely. There's also the problem of comparing modern day women with modern day trends in like nutrition or physical exercise or all of these things to people when those trends were extremely different. So if you, for example, were malnourished or, you know, had to survive with a dozen siblings. So not everybody got as much food as they should have, or were in a time and place where women didn't exercise that much and didn't have muscular bodies and didn't have, um, you know, larger waist sizes in general, then what you're going to see is that smaller trend in clothing. But also, that trend in clothing isn't representative of what we see in the samples in museums. So I go to museums, I look at the corsets, and the corsets have a wide variety of sizes that you know are anywhere from extremely tiny to pretty normal to what we would consider larger sizes for today. O'Followell's book details a whole host of health risks that he relates directly to wearing to corsets. I know you mentioned that there's a whole bunch of them right up front. So what did he think that they could do to you exactly? Oh, everything from kidney disease to liver disease to uterine prolapse to, of course, we have the stereotypical fainting, which I'm not... I would love to go back and actually get data on that, but it's such a transient thing that there is no data on that. Um, broken ribs, all sorts of ways in which the body could change. The interesting thing, of course, is that I started out as uh, looking at the skeletons, and he got that right. The corset does alter the skeletons significantly, but where he and I differ on this particular aspect is that language use. Is it harm or is it just change? We change a lot of things over the course of our life that don't end up being harmful or dangerous. And his focus was really on harm, was on the women hurting themselves, both on a daily basis and on a long-term basis up until death. Um, he had a huge, huge passion for talking about women deforming not only their bodies, but also the bodies of their children. Um, and this, of course, was echoed in popular culture of the day. Uh, Montpassant's The Mother of Monsters is about a woman who discovered that she could make money selling her children to freak shows. 
And so she would tighten her corset against her pregnancies and create these monsters, in quotes. Wow. I, I mean, you you know that that is going to be like a horror story and it's going to be a bit exaggerated. But what does something like that tell us of the view of women at the time? Absolutely. There were ways to be a woman that did not include motherhood, but for Ophalawal and for Montpassant and for all, you know, all sorts of, of people during the time period, there were very, they were very circumscribed to these particular ways. If you weren't going to be a mother, you had to be contributing something else domestically. Um, and if you were going to be a mother, then you had to be the proper type of mother. You basically had to stop living your own life as soon as there were children. And if you weren't willing to do that, then you were um, condemned. You yourself were monstrous, not just the, the product of your conception, but you were considered monstrous if you weren't motherly in the right way and if you weren't womanly in the right way. Wow. That is uh, that is so awful, just uh, upsetting to think about. So how did they relate to, uh, corsets to fertility? What were they worried about in, in terms of like the, the dangers, real or imagined? There is historical precedent for people who talk about population control as it was known back then, or birth control as it's known now, to take matters into their own hands and tighten their corset against a pregnancy. What's fascinating to me is that we are now in a period of time where we're going backwards with our conceptions of conception. At the time, in 1908 and a little previous to this, when the whole birth control as a thing controversy was going down, 1870s-ish, pregnancy was really only defined as a thing once the quickening happened. Mm -hmm. The quickening is when the mother herself can feel the baby move, or the, the pregnant person, respectively, uh, can feel the baby move within the womb. And this was a legal definition for a very long time, and it is approximately what we now consider the age of viability. So 19 to 20 weeks is viability uh, in modern medical practice. And in a lot of cases, um, abortion laws right now are tagged to viability, or at least the better abortion laws are now tagged to viability. And we're going backwards. We're going back to what Ophalwell wanted, which was any person of any time during their pregnancy to be punished for doing anything that could disrupt that pregnancy, including corseting. He quotes a law that was um, supposedly done during the time of James II and VII, um, who oversaw the witch hunts in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And this law is potentially apocryphal. It comes in a whole bunch of, like, if you if you Google this particular law, you will find information about apocryphal laws. So uh, it may not have ever been a thing, but Ophalawal certainly believed it was. And it was the criminalization of marriage by deception using the corset as the deception. And if the person had miscarried via that, there was also to be more punishment for them. Um, he also quotes a couple of proposed laws, so laws that hadn't been passed. Um, again, you can, if you Google them, you find apocryphal laws. And during the time, people actually thought that the people proposing these laws were doing it to sort of shit stir, mm -hmm. which is distinctly a possibility. But things that would punish women for corseting during their fertile years. There was such a panic about women controlling their own fertility just as there is now. Wow. It's grotesque. Like speaking it of creating grotesques, it's, it just, it creates the woman or the person, depending on which time period you're speaking in. I use women for Ophalawal's time period because the binary was uh, considerably more accepted, um, normalized, and now we are denormalizing the binary, which is great. Um, but there is this focus on the person as their womb and the product of it and virtually nothing else. And you see this, you see this on Reddit, mm -hmm. like you see this on forums that contain the most vile misogyny imaginable 
that are just <clears throat> telling people that you need to have babies and if you can't or you won't then you are evil oh yes oh we've seen plenty of that and um i i hate this this treatment of of women you know that that you're not your own person it's just your potential to maybe one day become pregnant you know we're we're seeing this with like medications and things that are being restricted um not like maybe a woman isn't trying to become pregnant but they'll restrict this medication because it might her affect her ability to become pregnant or it might yeah. affect the viability of that pregnancy um never mind like what she actually wants or whether or not she's even planning to have children. And it was it was the same when Ofalawell was writing this book and they were worried about corsets. So the yeah. idea that women should be punished for wearing corsets just in case they get pregnant, it's it's just the same thing again, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And the the fascinating part about this is that the assumptions that he makes are that women are this monolith, that all married women particularly will want to have pregnancies, will want to have births. And his argument is tautological, that they're going to want this because that's what they're doing. And he just ignores the fact that he and other doctors like him are in fact making it so that they don't have a choice. The birth control during this time period was disgusting or unreliable or both, so, you know, some combination of painful or ineffective. Um, if it did manage to prevent birth, it might not also prevent, prevent STDs. So if you did want children later on, you might not be able to have them anyway because of the venereal disease brought home by whomever your partner was. And it is literally this assumption that of course a married woman is going to want repeated pregnancies but then also that the corset not the repeated pregnancies is responsible for things like uterine prolapse there are some fascinating pictures in this book where you can see the cervix protruding out of the person's vagina because of multiparity because she has had you know, half a dozen children and there's no support there for her body. Right, right. But but pregnancy is natural and that never happens with pregnancy. So it must be the corset. <laughs> must be. Yeah, that's heavy sarcasm. I know you guys can't see my face right now, but you can imagine it. <laughs> you can imagine what it looks like. Oh my goodness. So of course they're, you know, they're trying to crack down on this and they want women to have as many pregnancies as possible. So they want to remove the corset. And this is going to be part of why they're kind of arguing against it. Because as you were saying, some women did successfully self-manage abortions using, using their corsets. How, what do we know about this? There is, interestingly enough, for the topic of this podcast, there's a book called A Dirty Filthy Book. <laughs> And it um, it talks about the various ways of birth control, and it talks about it in relation to um, the Malthusians. Malthusians were a group of people who wanted to ensure that everybody in the world, well, specifically in that point, everybody in the UK, had enough to eat, which is a great idea. But the way they did it was this idea of eugenics and population control. So containing the growth of the population so that the food wouldn't run out. On the surface, great idea. In execution, usually very, very bad. But one of the things they did that was beneficial, the Neo-Malthusians did that was beneficial, was to create this pamphlet talking about ways to control your own spread of the population, ways to control your birth. So they talked about chemicals and they talked about condoms, which at the time were just like occasionally made of linen, often washed and reused. And like, ugh. Yeah, <laughs> not very reliable. <laughs> really not reliable at all. Um, and they did talk about the corset. Now, whether or not this was apocryphal is again something that historians don't necessarily agree on my kingdom for a time machine really because the issue with constriction and the uterus is things in the body are squishy mm -hmm. and implantation can be either very successful in 
ways that are surprising and shocking and defy odds, or it can be incredibly easily disrupted. So can we specifically say that the corset was responsible for those miscarriages? Well, miscarriages happened all the time anyway. Now, women, of course, have been doing desperate things since there were reasons to do desperate things. So did they use the corset? Probably. But I don't think, again, like tight lacing, I don't think it was this massive thing that needed to be panicked about. No, no, definitely not. And um, I mean, certainly wouldn't have been the most common method. Now, when people were were using, you know, contraception and abortifacients at the time, I mean, there were so many available. And I mean, I've read, um, uh, I, I've read doctors writing about uh, the effects of like pennyroyal po uh, poisoning, which seems like it would be like a lot more, a lot more common or, or certainly more effective um, if, if not to mention extremely dangerous. Oh, yeah. um, goodness. And pennyroyal, rue, nutmeg, a whole bunch mm -hmm. of different seasonings, spices, all sorts of things, um, impacts, like I've mentioned, there, there are various ways to abort that we do not endorse at all, ever, no, not ever. through not at the moment, but that have been passed down through that period of history as something that is quite often dismissed by these doctors, which of course are women's ways you know the things that women do for themselves to take care of problems mm -hmm. yes yes absolutely and that is something that we've spent a lot of time on on this podcast as well um so I'm, I'm sure you guys will be familiar with those so now it just seems like the corset is a scapegoat for so many things and by focusing on it it is distracting from some bigger issues so so for example he says that corsets could cause women to starve to death to asphyxiate to cough up blood so were they just a scapegoat for common causes of death like in the 19th century like i've never heard of a corset giving somebody tuberculosis right that is that was where way back in 2012 my brain did that record scratch noise. Uh-huh. It's like, they're... Moulin Rouge <laughs> is a musical devoted to tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. There were wards where people would go to die of consumption. There was consumption chic. Um, there's all this focus on tuberculosis and the effects of it, including the primary one of coughing up blood, and yet it is mentioned nowhere in this book. This book is over 300 pages long. He does not mention tuberculosis once, not once. Not even where he says coughing up blood, he blames the corset for that. And if he's blaming the corset for that, first of all, what kind of doctor is he at all? Because how do you miss this? How do you miss this in 1908? How do you miss tuberculosis? But also, how is he projecting this agenda? And really, what is this agenda that he's projecting? If it's not the corset, and everybody can see through this, anybody with any medical knowledge at that time period would be able to see right through this. Why is he doing this? That is the question. Yeah, you know, the whole thing, like, well, his whole book, um, it reads like a sponsored poster, like an infomercial, you know, like, Underwear causes tuberculosis. Buy my special safe underwear. Like, is this guy Dr. Oz? Is, like, the whole point to sell Glenard's corsets? Like, what is he trying to achieve here? You know, it really seems like yes. And I wish I did know more about him specifically because I would love to pick his brain about this. I would also like to, like, dig up his bones and beat him with something because <laughs> just doing the project itself was infuriating being in his mind is excruciatingly painful because the anti-female agenda is so very clear mm -hmm. but also i don't know how or why he became a doctor i don't know what his practical day-to-day -day existence was like who he was treating any of that stuff and i'm very curious about it because not only was he wrong about things that he should not have been wrong about, mm -hmm. he had this very clear agenda and he had a history of, throughout this book, falsifying many, many things 
um, from the radiographs themselves to the rampant amounts of plagiarism, mm -hmm. uh, which is up in the news lately too. It is just, it, it makes me want to know what was going on that he thought that this was a reasonable thing to put in this book. That is the question. Now, I thought the radiographs were so interesting, and I'm so glad that you mentioned them. Now, most people, I would assume, reading this at the time would take those totally at face value, but you're oh, actually absolutely. analyzing them, and, and you know, you're you're analyzing them from, from a point of view of, of somebody who knows how to read these, you know, so, so they're not just x-rays of women in corsets, you know, I mean... <laughs> Like they're, they're blatantly fake, you know, and, and one of them, the corset is on top of a woman and it's backwards. She's not even wearing it. Like, yeah. what was he thinking? So this actually is, is frustrating in a way that is incredibly personal. Mm -hmm. um, so prior to doing this project, I I did not know how to read radiographs. I still don't for your average radiograph for today. What I do know is the skeletal structure of the thoracic cage, because that is the subject of my dissertation work, which became the course of its skeleton. I know what a thoracic cage looks like. I know what ribs look like. I know what vertebrae look like. I know where they should be and how they should appear in a quote unquote anatomically normal person. If you have training in biological anthropology, uh, skeletal biology, there are things that stand out to you as not normal, as anatomically abnormal. Um, and I will admit that it took me a while to spot the problems with these particular radiographs, because just like the people in 1908, I didn't know there was a reason that I shouldn't trust them. Mm -hmm. You put something in a medical textbook, you expect to be able to take that at face value, which of course is a cautionary tale to all of us to really do dig into our sources and examine what those sources are actually showing us versus what we are expecting to see. But the problem with this goes back to um, 2012. In 2012, uh, Pamela Stone published an article on the bioarchaeology of violence, basically, on uh, neck stretching and foot binding and the corset. And she used one of Afalawal's x-rays to discuss this. She's also a biological anthropologist and um, she is one of the sources that I used in my dissertation. I uh, did not necessarily agree with her take on the violence of the subject, but I also didn't, at that point, realize that there was an issue with this particular radiograph, which nobody at the time had figured out. So as I'm looking through O'Fallowell's book with an eye towards publishing it as the bad corset, I realized that, first of all, I was going to have to call in an expert who did have experience with x-rays. They're a little, they're, they're considerably different than looking at things um, that have already been skeletonized. When you have experience working with the dead, it's, it's quite different than looking at an x-ray of a, a living person. But Ophalawell wasn't using x-rays of living people for the most part. He was doing the 1908 version of Photoshop, whatever that would have been. Superimposing images on top of each other, using mock-ups. Um, one of the, the first radiograph in the book is actually an image where he's been, he's used bones and just sort of put them in the approximate places where they should be before taking the radiograph. And this is the one that really made me stop and look at the rest of them. Because in this first image, the vertebrae have been turned 90 degrees. So if you have a vertebrae that's pointed forward, the hole is in the middle, it comes from the top and goes down to the bottom. That is how your spinal cord goes through it and why you can walk around and not be paralyzed. And so his image turns those 90 degrees so that the hole is going from the back to the front. This is not a living human being. No. There is no way to get that image from an alive person. So I had to 
reevaluate not only the content of the book in terms of the fact that his biggest piece of evidence here was falsified, but also then the entire segment of biological anthropology that dealt with this, which is very, very small, unfortunately. It's it's me, it's Dr. Pamela Stone, it's a couple of other people who are doing um doing similar research. But for the larger data set, for the skeletal data set, it is essentially my work. Um, due to an accident. <laughs> in which I was the last researcher at the Museum of London before they shut in 2015 to attempt to move their collection. Uh, they were going to finish by 2021, but we all know what happened in 2020. And they are now no longer opening up again until 2026. So oh, no. for a decade that has not ended yet, my work is the work. Wow. Now, I'm so glad that you mentioned the corseted skeleton. I mean, such a such an incredible book. Now, in contrast to O Followell, you actually looked at these at these bones from from this kind of correct point of view. You know, you didn't arrange them. <laughs> I just I just have to like, like take a minute and just think about how ridiculous that is that he did that. Like, just that's just so silly. So anyway, for for the corseted skeleton, you actually studied the skeletal remains from women buried at St. Bride's Parish in London. So what did you find? Uh, did the corset significantly change the bodies of these women? And was it anything like he, what he was talking about? That's the frustrating part is he didn't have to do these manipulations on the x-rays. If he had done the x-rays on women in their corsets, it would have shown him exactly what he wanted to prove, which is that corseting significantly alters the shape and size of the thoracic cage and does move organs around. Now, does it do it harmfully? Again, we can go back and discuss that for ages and ages, depending on our various definitions of harm. I say no. But he didn't have to do it. And the wonderful thing about using the St. Brad's um, cemetery collection was that I also had the chance to contrast it with skeletons from the Paris collection at the Musée de l'Homme, which were articulated at their time of death. Mm -hmm. Now, for St. Bride's, you have this amazing snapshot. Uh, the, the lower cemetery, which is where the St. Bride's collection comes from, the FAO 90 collection comes from, um, began in 1770. That's when the cemetery opened and closed in 1849. Um, and after that, there was a couple of world wars, and during World War II, a bomb was dropped on the cemetery. So in order to preserve the skeletons and to show respect, basically, to the people who had been buried there, they excavated that part of the cemetery and moved the remains to the Museum of London for study. So this is, as mentioned, a snapshot. This is almost 100 years of people who ate London food and drank London water and got London diseases and wore London clothing. They were Christian, they were, because they were buried in a Christian cemetery, they were um, everywhere from lower class to upper middle class, uh, basically from impoverished and living in a poor house, which is where a lot of the people in the cemetery came from, all the way to the upper middle class printers who had publishing businesses on Printer's Row there. And they um, provide this really great look of people you know are going to have worn a corset and people you know who will have worn it across their lives and who died contiguously and were buried in this same cemetery. So contrast that with the, with the uh, museum collection in Paris where this museum was collected over a span of time that was about equal to the St. Bride's collection, but it was done one very sad human life at a time. Um, the originator of the museum collection, would uh, Georges Cuvier, would go out or send out collectors to various locations across the world and have 
them bring him back human specimens, which we don't say anymore. That's that's not a word we use to describe human beings. Um, but he would consider them specimens to use as examples in his museum. So through this collection, you can see a cross section of the whole world, basically. People who lived in countries without European influence, people who lived in countries with European influence, but on the colonizers side of things, and people from across Europe, including England, France, etc. So basically looking between the two, what I found was that the rib cages of people who could either be reliably assumed to have corseted in the French collection or demonstrably would have corseted in the English collection had rounder rib cages. The human rib cage is wider than it is deep. So if you get a perfect circle, you know there's been some alteration and uh, damage to the spinous processes sort of downward and pressed in so their angles are smaller than the anatomically normal angle. What I didn't find was shorter lives though. They all lived a pretty long time comparatively speaking with the average life of death for the St. Bride's collection done not just with the skeletons but also parish records being in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. Now, for this book, you also looked at the the experiences of, of the women who were wearing the corsets. How did they see it? That depended on who was being asked and what their own particular agenda was. And again, we have that whole survivorship bias thing because... Um, any woman who would write into a magazine about her own experiences would be literate, would be somebody who didn't feel social stigma against writing into a magazine. You know, it would be somebody with power, with the ability to be public about their experiences. So we have that as an issue. But there was a genre of uh, experience type writing that defended the corset wholeheartedly. It was comfortable, they didn't mind it, they enjoyed it, um, they wanted to pass this down to their daughters. And we have, again, this difficulty looking back into the past and making direct comparisons. We don't have much that would directly compare to this, but I do like to use the analogy of orthodontic braces because we're taking a functional bone system and we're changing the shape and we're doing this on behalf of our children. They're not asking us for braces. I don't think any child these days is going to get to the age of 12 and be like, I want to get me some braces. <laughs> what we're doing is we're making that choice for the future generations. We're saying, I like this. I want this for my children. And is it doing harm? No. I mean, to people's pocketbooks and braces aren't comfortable um, by any sense of the imagination. At least I've heard I did not have them myself. But is it harmful? No. So people are still really divided about corsets today. And you'd think we'd know better, but people still take Well Followell's book at face value. So illustrations from it are still shared all over the place, but let's put this to bed once and for all. How wrong was he? Are corsets safe? As with all things, that is going to depend on how you are using them. He didn't have a point on that particular aspect. Anything that is used um, specifically to self-harm can of course be harmful. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we have the ability to look at this from a much more person-to-person -person perspective. And we have the ability to change. And a lot of the things that were being done during O'Followell's time are things that we know better of now. 
So yeah, if you wear your corset for 23 out of 24 hours a day, which was the whole thing that people were supposed to be doing, I, I don't think they actually did that. Have you ever tried to sleep in a bra? I mean, <laughs> why? Um, then you, yeah, you're going to have problems. Uh, if you wear anything for too long, you're going to have problems. But we don't, we don't do that. We don't ever have to do that. And um, there are certain aspects to it that I continue to push back against both in talks like this. And I recently wrote an opinion piece for iNews in, in uh, the UK um, that we need to buy things and wear things that fit. And we have come a long way towards sort of redoing that. Now, during the follow-alls time, we're just seeing the beginning of off-the-shelf clothing. We're moving from basically an entirely bespoke clothing time period where there was no factory-made clothing, there, there were no prefabbed corsets into which you just like dropped the bones and then sewed at the ends. Everything was made to the shape and size of the person. So during the follow-alls time, you had to either go out of your way to get something that wasn't going to fit, or you had to be using things past their use life. Nowadays, we're moving more towards the bespoke again. So we're coming out of the prefab uh, era and moving more towards really respecting artisans, including people who make corsets. And where this comes into play is the perpetuation of that myth of corseting harm. And this is quite often perpetuated in popular culture by shows like Bridgerton or by um, movies where women wear corsets for their parts. So you have this conflation of corsets and harm because actresses are speaking out about their costumes not fitting correctly and hurting them. And they should speak out about that. I highly recommend that they do. But the corset itself isn't the problem. The problem mm -hmm. is that they're being given costumes that don't fit, that are made for materials that are improper for the time period. Bridgerton, which I have heard is a lovely show, I have not watched it, um, is set in a faux regency period and the stays that were used during that period are extremely minimal. Um, there's almost no waist definition going on. I'm gesturing like you can see it. You totally can't see that. <laughs> but um, it's really, it's all about the uh, breast support. And it's much closer to a bra than we have in your mainstream Victorian corset, which comes later. And in no way should this make it difficult to eat. In no way should this cut off your breath. In no way should this be anything other than a support garment like it is meant to be. So we need we need to learn from this. We need to not throw up our hands and be like, oh, well, it's the corset, can't do anything. No, we need to make garments that actually fit for people who are doing their jobs and take that power back from that myth of corseting harm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. It seems like every time a new period drama comes out, like the debate just starts all over again. And I know, I think it was last year, there was even some discussion about getting um, getting away from using corsets in historical programming at all, which seems outrageous to me. I mean, I'm not a fashion historian, but I enjoy it. But I know that if you don't have the correct period appropriate foundation garments, the costumes are not going to look right. And that's no. very important. And, you know, you did mention Bridgerton. And I think that's a great that's a great example, because, as you say, you know, the Regency stays, they're almost more like a long line bra. They don't even go all the way down. It's not about that kind of waist definition because you can't see it under those dresses. But no. but in Bridgerton, the, the scene that I think everyone thinks about, you know, um, Daphne's getting ready to be presented to the queen and they're they're pulling her corset super, super tight. And it does look really uncomfortable, but it's because she's not wearing under anything underneath it. You're supposed yeah. to wear it over a shift or a chemise. It's not supposed to rub up against your your bare skin. Of course, it's right. very, very uncomfortable. And um, and I, I think that people don't uh, necessarily appreciate that what we see in these period dramas is is not what people were actually 
doing, you know, right. and then that gets repeated in other kind of movies. It gets repeated in books where, you know, anybody in like a 19th century book, oh, they just hate their corset, you know, but if you spend any time <laughs> in one, you know that how, how good they can be. So just my yeah. little aside, you know, I used to be a historical tour guide and I used to have to wear a corset for work every weekend. And it was great, you know, yeah. um, because it fit properly and it gives you this wonderful back support and, and it enables you to kind of stay up for longer than you otherwise might, you know, by the end of the night, otherwise, I mean, I think my, my back would have been really hurting, but you know, you're just so grateful to have that extra help. Some nights oh, I would be so tired. Like the course, that was the only thing that kept me going, you know, materials matter too. And yes. I know that Bridgerton specifically has been using um, very modern material. Like they're they're going with the polyesters, they're going with the brighter colors, which is very much the aesthetic of the show. But I would be willing to bet that they're also going with plastic boning for the corsets. Mm -hmm. Now you would think that a flexible plastic boning would be more comfortable, but in fact, it's the opposite. You want that structural support, like you were saying. You want that rigidity because things that flex are things that rub. Yes. So it's going to be more painful than if you had a steel-boned corset or, of course, back in the day, a whale-boned corset. Mm, yes, absolutely. And now you get these steel boned ones and, um, and you can find some good ones. But but as you say, I mean, it's, it's all about fit and about, you know, finding people who know what they're doing. So what do you think about the argument that corsets are a tool of the patriarchy? Can corsets be feminist? I definitely think corsets can be feminist, particularly now, but also back during O'Followell's time period. Feminism is about choice. It's about the ability to make choices for yourself. Anything can be seen as a tool of the patriarchy depending on how it is being used. I'm currently in the data gathering phase for an upcoming project on shoes, which is gonna take a look at high heels. Um, but we have a tendency to delegitimize people's agency and to overemphasize the um, the other factors like style or fashion or dominance or patriarchy. During O'Followell's time, I'm not denying patriarchy is a factor in all of this. It definitely is. But it's not an overriding factor in fashion. Fashion has been for, very, for a very long time um, female-driven. Mostly during this time period, it was the women who were making patents for corsets uh, who were making patterns for them, all of this stuff was very female-driven. Yes, you can have internalized patriarchy, internalized misogyny, but there's very little evidence that that was what was going on. And the good majority of the arguments against corsets were coming from men, from male doctors. O'Followell, in fact, devotes several of his last chapters to why women are doing this for men, but why men don't actually want them to do this for them. So he himself is arguing that this is not a patriarchal issue. Now, contrasting with that is what he's actually doing in the book. So if somebody says, I will not marry you if you are not corseted, then you have several choices within this particular structure here. You could not marry them. You could wear the corset and marry them, which is a choice, not necessarily a great one, but it's a choice. You could marry them and be disobedient in quotation marks. All of these things are on the spectrum of control. Societal control is significantly overemphasized when it comes to things like fashion because, again, we look at people as a monolith when they were not behaving monolithically. And O'Followell um, wants to take away that area of choice. He wants to forbid the corset. He wants to make it so that his new um, more medical corsets are the ones that are used so that you don't have choice as to what you do over your own body. So instead of the corset being a tool of the patriarchy, the corset is really a way in which women expressed their own 
agency over their bodies. We go back to the ideas of abortion and miscarriage. We go back to the ideas of tight lacing and how people did or did not employ that. We go back to those ideas about women driving the fashion forward and making this choice for their children, including their daughters. I want this for you. I like this. I found this comfortable and supportive and helpful in my life. Now, if one of those helps was being marriageable, when on this earth have we not decided things by the idea of being marriageable? Mm -hmm. We would have to go back a significant way to reach a point in time where pair bonding wasn't something that we took into consideration in our daily lives. If we're doing it through fashion, does that make the fashion a tool of the patriarchy? I honestly can't see that. Wow. So how did O'Followell's book influence modern medicine's view of women, and how much damage did it actually do? That's an excellent question, and again, does not have an excellent answer, because we don't know much about the printing of the book and the distribution of the book. Um, so we can't draw a line directly from him to the doctors who came after him or who read the book to, you know, the post-war years to any of that stuff to the creation of woman as a medical subject. What we can do is looking back in time, we can take a look at how women are treated now mm -hmm. and how those ideas that he encapsulated in his book have really been passed down almost unchanged, almost complete in their thoughts about women and pain or women and vanity or women and childbirth and motherhood. And so we take a look at, uh, there's, a, there's a meta study that I quote somewhere in the bad corset about women's pain being ignored by doctors. You go in for uh, what ends up being a ruptured appendix, and you are told that it's anxiety or menstrual cramps or whatever the modern doctor has used to replace the term hysteria, and you're sent home. Like, we have imaging studies, we have blood tests that will confirm a burst appendix. They're not given to women because women's pain is systematically just disavowed by the medical field. And this, of course, is 100 times worse if you are a woman of color, if you have any other sort of disadvantage, if you're not a native English speaker, if you're disabled, if you have, if you're impoverished and you can't pay for your medical care, it is so much harder um, through those intersections to get pain treatment, to get adequate medical care. It all stems from this idea of women don't know what they're talking about in terms of their own body because women are bound by this corset into thinking that they have to look a certain way so they're not accurately reporting what they feel about their body. They must be, they must be um, confused. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly patronizing. Mm -hmm. That's where we get the patriarchy is yeah. in this whole, you know, oh, no, she can't possibly be self-accurate, be accurately self-reporting. She's She's confused. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I think, I think everybody's going to be able to relate to that one. Oh dear. Well, this book was absolutely incredible. And this conversation has been so interesting. So what is next for you and where can we find more about you and your work? So next I have a book coming out on uh, the matrix and transhumanism. I'll be looking at all four of the Matrix movies, plus the interstitials, which include the Animatrix and the two Matrix comic books. Uh, that should be out sometime in 2024, knock on wood. I have a book under contract about the mundane in our daily lives as seen through horror fiction, which is going to be really fun to write once I get around to that. Uh, that one, I hope, comes out in 2025. Uh, and then, of course, the book that I just recently mentioned on shoes, which I hope to title Well Healed. My editors hate my puns, but I, I like them. So I always put forward a pun as a title. 
Um, and that's going to go back to those museums and look at the bioarchaeology of the foot and how we blame high heels for things, um, patriarchal things, bunions, etc. that might not possibly be a result of actually wearing high heels. So you can find me on Twitter. I refuse to call it by its new name at our Gibson girl. And you can find me on a couple of other social medias there as well. And you can find my book length projects at uh, amazon.com slash author slash Rebecca Gibson bioanthro. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. This has been amazingly fun. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Rebecca Gibson for being our guest today. The Corset Skeleton is out now, and The Bad Corset, A Feminist Reimagining, comes out in May. I would also like to thank our fabulous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collins, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Ryan Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Kirsten Lawrence, Scott Lohman, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show by becoming a patron, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, Blue Sky, and even Threads at Dirty Sexy History. We're also on TikTok now, and we're starting to post reels there on Instagram too, so stop by and check it out. As always, our website for longer history articles is dirtysexyhistory.com. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.